I'm going to talk with Stuart Pierce. His book is published by Skyhorse. The title was Diana, The Voice of Change. His next, coming out shortly, is Diana, Wish You Were Here. Stuart Pierce, with whom we now speak, is in London. He's called the Master of Voice. He's coached names from Downton Abbey's Hugh Bonneville to Eddie Redmayne. He's coached politicians from Margaret Thatcher to Benazir Bhutto and Princess Diana. He's been called Diana's confidant and friend. Listen, Stuart, why in the Mm -hmm. first place did she need you? Because she watched herself on the BBC interview with Martin Bashir that was filmed for Panorama, although she was very pleased with her bid for freedom in terms of what she said, she wasn't very pleased with the way that she appeared. Um, She felt herself to be submissive and that her voice wasn't strong enough. In other words, the power that she was beginning to feel within herself as she freed herself wasn't fully equated within the way that her voice functioned. Well, one would not believe that someone who is a Brit from a classy family, from well-educated people, would require something like that. Well, yes, I mean, of course, it wasn't to do necessarily with a lack of clarity in speech. She spoke very clearly, but she didn't feel a center to her voice. She didn't feel a power to her voice. And, of course, as we both know, that the breath is the thing, is the motivating force that positions our voices. And she felt very weak in her breath, which was constantly creating tension. And she wanted to move into a state of feeling more empowered and more relaxed. I know that you're called the master of speech, as I said in the, in the master, introduction. Master of voice, yeah. Yes, all the people that you have, you have helped. How did she know you? I was recommended to Diana. Uh, I was recommended to Diana in the early 90s by a very dear friend of hers who was a leading restaurateur here in the city of London and had been a great patroness of mine, had introduced me to some very extraordinary people whom I'd worked with. Um, And uh, to be honest, I was uh, slightly, I'm very honored to be asked, but very baffled because at that time, Diana, as we know, was surrounded by a circus of paparazzi. And so many of the people that she'd worked with as therapists, as healers, as psycho, psycho, um, psychoanalysts, had taken her, their story to the national papers. And therefore, she was scarred by a lot of betrayal. So when the uh, when I was asked again in '95, I said, "Well, why don't we why don't we meet? Why don't we talk about it?" And so I met Diana with the person that I've just been speaking about, the restaurateur called Mara Burney, and immediately was compelled to offer my services to Diana. I mean, I hesitate to say that I was extremely offered by the um, by the opportunity that was being initiated, but at the same time, I didn't see how I could serve the complexity of what her role was all about until I met the individual herself. I know that you, I know, of course, that you have had a special odd interview with a French cleric who, that night she died, sat with her dead body six hours. I know the story, but you must explain it to me. How did that happen? (laughs) 
It was very extraordinary that uh, through a colleague of mine, I was introduced to the idea of this gentleman whom I'd never heard of. I wondered, of course, who had spent um, the night with with Diana between her arrival at the hotel, uh, the hospital rather, and then the eventual arrival of Prince Charles when her body was wrapped in the royal ensign and taken back to the UK. And so when I was introduced to the idea of this gentleman, this wonderful Roman Catholic priest in Paris, I was also somewhat surprised because, after all, she was not a Roman Catholic person. She was um, a Church of England person. Yes. So apparently the story goes that the the British ambassador in Paris could not find an Anglican priest, so automatically called this this certain Roman Catholic priest who had allegiance to the hospital where Diana's body was taken uh, as a chaplain. But he wasn't told who it was. He was just asked at 2.30 in one morning, the morning of August the 31st, 1997, if he would actually arrive at the hospital, which he did, and met, of course, in great surprise, the fact that he was going to be giving the last rites to Diana, Princess of Wales. Well, of course, I have I have met her, and, and I will talk about that in a moment. But what was she like with you in her off hours? Was she like any other ordinary person? She was extraordinary. I mean, firstly, as you well know, there was her captivating beauty, which was to do not just simply by the way that she looked, but also to do with this extraordinary authenticity, immediacy, kindness, and charm. Yeah. Uh, and very, very funny, uh, extremely personable, and one of the most generous people that I've ever met. I mean, she was, in short, enchanting. I absolutely adored her. She was so easy to work with and so appreciative of everything that took place between us. But you both went uh, to, a, to a... Did you not go to a movie together in, in one day, yes. one night? On one or two occasions, I mean, Diana loved to be ordinary. So, for example, often when she would arrive at my studio for work, she would say, can I can I do some washing up? So I would actually leave crockery in the kitchen for her to wash up so that she could just simply feel very ordinary and grounded. I think on one occasion she said to me, you always wear such beautiful shirts. Can I iron your shirts? Well, I said, oh, no, God. no, oh, I, I, Lord, I'll yeah. leave some china wear for you to wash up, <laughs> my darling, but I don't think my shirts are appropriate. <laughs> And so we, we became very familiar on that level. I mean, she, I saw her almost once or twice a week for nearly two years, except, of course, when she was away on state occasions or, you know, away on vacations or whatever. And so on one particular occasion, she called me because all of our connection was, was created through cellular telephones. And she called me and said, I want to go to the movies. Let's go to the movies. What should we see? And I said, what? I, I don't think I can do this. I mean, you'll be surrounded by security. No, I'm going to be incognito. Meet me at the end of the avenue leading to Kensington Palace at 7 o'clock, and we'll go and see Jerry Maguire. And so oh, I, remember <laughs> I arrived yes. at the, the end of the avenue that leads to Kensington Palace and noticed a you know, fairly tall, rather beautiful, um, dark, dark-wigged, person with a trench coat and a pair of sunglasses and I thought that they were Russian possibly from a, a Russian the Russian embassy which is also on the avenue that leads towards Kensington Palace and uh, it, uh, she lifted her sunglasses and there was Diana 
And so we walked along the main road, which is known as Kensington High Street, yeah. towards the movie theatre and um, giggled all the way. It was quite extraordinary. Nobody knew who she was, which was unusual, because after all, she was the most photographed woman in recorded history. Who paid for the movie? I'm sorry? Who paid for the movie? Oh, I did. I did. <laughs> I did, yes. I mean, I, I did all the arranging. You know, okay, I, okay. I seem to remember um, purchasing water. Neither of us wanted Coca-Cola. And she wanted some popcorn, so I bought popcorn. I mean, I got the tickets and so forth and so forth, yeah. It was all as though, as though we were on a date, you know. So we were arm in, she was arm in my arm. And um, we constantly wearing sunglasses. Tell us, tell us about that famous svelte, tight-fitting revenge dress. How did that come about and why? It's a famous dress. It was a very famous dress, yes. It, it, it had been announced via Prince Charles channels that he um, had become very candid about his um, infidelity. And it just so happened that Diana was invited to a reception at the Serpentine Gallery. This, I, I believe, was the late summer of 94. And she came for a session with me beforehand. And prior to her session with me, she she was a very sportive lady. So she regularly had massage, reflexology, facials. And on this particular occasion, had had a colonic irrigation at the famous <laughs> Hay Hay. Uh, Hale Clinic in London. A colonic and so she arrived for her session with me before she came colonic. to you. A colonic <laughs> irrigation before she colonic came. Colonic irrigation, okay. exactly. Is there another phrase <laughs> uh, for well, that you know, that's not it so was fancy? A way of cleaning out. Okay. The the mess that had been created within her intestines. Yes, I, okay, I got it. Bulimia. I got it. Okay. What's this yeah. got to do with the stupid tight-fitting revenge dress? Okay. <laughs> and so the point was that as she was leaving me to jump into her car to drive back to Kensington Palace for hair, makeup, and the revenge dress, she turned to me and said, isn't it wonderful? Because nobody's going to know I've had a colonic. <laughs> and, and left to put on this extraordinary, very revealing, low decolletage short dress who looked absolutely extraordinary. And uh, since that occasion, it wasn't Diana that created the term revenge, but the, the press called it the revenge dress because she looked outstandingly stunning. Well, did she really love Charles? We know about Charles and his hope to be Tampax with Camilla, this charmer yeah. that he is now going to make a queen a little bit. What, did she really love him? Yes, she did. How do you know? End. How do you know? How do you know, Stuart? Well, we were very intimate, and so she would often appear for consultation with me in a very emotional state. And so, obviously, being an empath myself, I would ask, what, what is the issue? Because it seems that we can't get on with the process of what we had itemized to work through. And so she would open her heart and tell me all the things that were taking place in, in strictest confidence, of course. Our relationship was completely secret, completely confidential. And on one of those occasions, on a number of those occasions, she kept repeating that I'm still in love with Charles. What am I going to do about this? How did she come to you? Did, did she come by herself? Did she drive to... Always, because remember at this time she had actually... 
shifted the position that she held for many years, where she had pr- personal protection officers. And when she became Diana, Princess of Wales, the personal protection officers fell away. So she was completely by herself. Occasionally associated with Paul Burrell, and occasionally with a member of her administration. But most of the time, she appeared by herself. I mean, little do we know that, you know, when she, when she was in, uh, at home in London, that she often appeared at 8 o'clock in the evening at one of London's leading hospitals, would park her car outside, run in and say to reception, is there anybody that I can sit with completely by herself? Ah, uh, um. What, uh, I'm I'm not one to miss a chance to pee on Prince Harry. Do you know anything about him and his me 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 Megan at all? Did she ever say anything? Did Diana speak about Harry? Yes. Well, I mean, she spoke copiously about her two boys, yes. I mean, she was constantly wishing to protect them from any harm, whether it be, um, you know, the insidious or vitriolic quality of press intervention with the paparazzi, or indeed protecting them within the confine of the royal family. So I know that they were very much negotiated when she discussed her divorce terms. Oh, she was devoted to the two boys, and um, I feel that we see her presence in them constantly today, 24 years after her, her, her demise. Tell- and, uh, you know, absolutely devoted, you know, and particularly Harry. I feel Harry has an impetuosity which was very similar to his mother. Impetuosity is a nice word. Okay, mm-hmm. let me go further. What about her fears? We felt, I mean, I felt that she had fears about something that would happen to her. Am I correct? Yes, and many people have alluded to these fears and have denounced them as being pure paranoia. But, you know, I was aware of some very unusual things taking place. I mean, for example, I remember one afternoon her arriving and her brakes had failed as she tried to park her car. I always made sure that there was a very easy access point for her to park the car um, in in, in the street of London where I lived so that she could then run into my studio. Um, and, and I remember calling car mechanics who came around and said, this is very unusual. The, the, the brake fluid seem to, seems to have congealed, so the brakes are no longer working. That happened on one occasion. Often she would arrive where she felt that she was being followed by men in black cars, is the way that she described it. So she was very fearful of uh, a number of major things that were going on. Her cell phone was constantly being mislaid. I know Paul Burrell was often given the commission of going off and getting another cell phone for her. You know, strange things happened. Um, I kept a number of memorabilia that she had given me because she was a fond letter writer or card sender. And they were, you know, as we see through all of the artifacts that have been collated since her demise, they're very cherished items where she pours her heart out in thanks, in, um, in you know, protestation of wonder and in, in great love. And I had a series of these letters that she'd written in a briefcase and an attache case at the back of my car. And I remember parking it. This was a week after her death parking it right outside the house where I lived. 
and ran inside. And when I came out, the briefcase had been stolen. But there was nobody in sight, and Ooh. my, Ooh. you know, my journey into my my house, my apartment was it probably took me about a half a minute, you know, sixty maybe a minute, um, and strange things took place, you know. Why now, a quarter of a century later, Stuart, are you doing another book about Diana? This is a long time later. Yeah, well. It's largely to do with the fact that so many of my female actor clients who are of some, you know, some notoriety um, have been very vocal about trying to find parity or equity in their status within Hollywood and elsewhere and how you know, so often the men are ruling rather than giving equal, equal parity to the women. And particularly, of course, we know as, as a result of hashtag MeToo, there has been a tremendous exposure over the substance of Harvey Weinstein and a number of, yeah, of other significant yeah. individuals. Yeah. And uh, so many, many of these wonderful people spoke to me, and I encouraged them and indeed took part in one famous New York Times article some years ago. And so I started writing the book about four years ago and uh, published it um, at the beginning of last year. And, of course, it was reprinted for, the, for August of this year. And as a result of the book and its emancipatory value, I've been approached by a leading New York publisher who wished to commission the writing of a second book about Diana, which will be dedicated purely to her legacy. Don't you think a bit it has to do with our coming out of CV and starting to dress again and they are resurrecting her styles and looks? I think that's happening too. And now on Broadway we're getting a musical about her. Does this not seem possible that she's being resurrected again emotionally? It's very extraordinary, isn't it, Cindy? It's very, yeah. very extraordinary. Yes. I know that Anna Winter had dedicated a number of major pages within Vogue around July of this year, which, of course, celebrated would have celebrated Diana's 60th birthday. And, of course, we know The Crown featured her very largely, which yes. has become an award-winning series yes. on Netflix. And now, as you say, we have... Um, both Diana the Musical and the film Spencer. Yes. So it seems that her spirit is wishing to talk to us in some way about furthering the verities and the virtues that she espoused so that they can become um, more attain obtainable in the world, particularly to emancipate the ladies of the world. What does the palace think of you? Well, I have very little to do with the hierarchy at the palace. Uh, my father worked in royal service and unfortunately died many, many years ago. And so my connection, my overt connection uh, was, was, was created or rather was, was finalized. Um, so I, I have no connection with Buckingham Palace at this time. Uh, it was very extraordinary that in 1982, I was invited to a garden party. I think that was the last garden party I went to. And, of course, met the young Princess Diana. Um, it was, of course, it was then, what, 12, 13 years later that I actually worked with her. But otherwise, I have no overt connection with BP. What memorabilia have you kept from her? Well, it was most of it was stolen. I mean, I have photographs that were given to me post her death 
because it became known that the briefcase full of her letters had been stolen. And so a number of people who were friends or associates of Diana helped me remember her by providing me photographs. So I have two very stunning photographs. Unfortunately, they're not signed, but they are of the Mighty One. Um, and so I have the iridescence of her beauty and her charm with me all the time. I remember, I, I met her on three occasions. I remember once in Brooklyn, she was uh, supposed to be honored by the Welsh Ballet or some such, and they had a special John, a toilet reserved just for the princess. And I thought, hi, you know, you have your own throne. That's really, that's really something. But she was she was very charming, and I don't know whether she used the John or not, but they had that set aside for her. That's really class, isn't it, when you have your own throne? Isn't it just, yes. And of course, as we know, she was so wonderfully praised and loved in the United States of America. And your, your wonderful city, New York City, was her bliss city. Well, we, we, un, we sort of understood her. We did sort of understand her. When she communicated... Was it all was it by phone? Did you call her? Were you able to call her? Did she always call you? How did it work? It was mostly her. You know, the understanding was that uh, we would have a confidential relationship, that whenever she needed me, she would call me via cell phone because cell phones were the latest gimmick at that time in 1995. And um, they were very large, I seem to remember. And so she would always contact me. I mean, on one or two occasions, I would text her initially, and then we would speak just in case she was engaged in an official engagement. Um, but most of the time, it was me waiting to hear from her. And I literally, as a result of our relationship, I allowed myself to be at her disposal. You mean if you had an appointment, you would cancel the appointment if she wanted to see I would you. always make space for her, yes. And obviously I was never inappropriate with some of my other rather wonderful, you know, um, nation-famous nation clients. Well, some of um, your nation-famous clients, which is not well, a phrase I would state, use easily. Well, tell us some of your nation-famous clients. I know Hugh Bonneville. I know that. And who, 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 who <laughs> the, else? The, the Tell actors, me. Uh, wonderful actors like Mark Rylance, whom I was working with particularly at that time, who has now been knighted, Sir Mark Rylance. Mark was, uh, was invited to be the first artistic director of Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, which was the reconstruction of the globe that would have stood originally in 1597 on the south bank of River Thames. And um, Mark asked me, that's where I get the title from, Mark asked me if I would become his master of voice, which I did from the inception of the project, which was really 96. So it was still while Diana was alive, all the way through to 2013, when, uh, 2012 rather, when I eventually resigned and went on to other things. I know um, that you Hugh did... Hugh Bonville, Vanessa Redgrave, you know, names like this. I know that you did... Well, I think I know you did Eddie Redmayne, and you did you did politicians. Did you not do Margaret Thatcher and Benazir Bhutto? Am I right? Or yes, wrong? I did, and Mo okay. Molum. Yes, I mean Margaret was my first great. That was the beginning because I was an actor during the seventies, and of course Margaret gained administration in seventy nine. And in 1980, I was asked to be her voice coach, which, of course, I stepped into with great glee 
Margaret was absolutely charming, a woman of immense grace and kindness. Uh, of course, now we look through the lens of history and we see that perhaps her reputation changed and she became very, very much the Iron Lady. But when I first met her, she was very eager to find a voice which was much less that sort of upper middle class sound yeah. and to find weight and position so that her authority and gravitas would be appreciated in the commons and elsewhere. So, yes, I, I, it was like a baptism by fire, I suppose you could say, um, and went on to work with Benazir, who was then the president of Pakistan, what a very remarkable lady who, unfortunately, um, was assassinated, as we know. Uh, and Momolam. Momolam was the, the parliamentarian that created the peace talks in Northern Ireland and had the British government and the Sinn Féin speak in open, uh, open debate and through conciliatory measure. She was very extraordinary. Listen, I thank you very, very much for talking with me. I've appreciated. When are you coming to the colonies? I shall be in New York City from November the 10th and would love to meet up. It would be wonderful. What are you I coming here so for? What are you coming here for? I'm coming to meet press and book signings, Cindy. Okay, okay, okay. High tea, sweetheart. We shall have high tea, okay? Lovely. Bless you. Thank you. I love to speak <laughs> Much with love. You. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you. Bye, honey. Bye-bye. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.